0: Well, good morning, church family, guests who are visiting with us today. We're glad you're here. Those of you who are joining us online, what a delight it is to be together as God's people, to be led in worship as we have been and now to have an opportunity to look into his word. I'm John Hayward, the associate pastor. Our senior pastor, Pastor Gordon, is on vacation. He'll be back next week and we'll start our study through John chapter 12 or pick it up there. I'm finishing up the end of John uh, chapter 11 today. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us both understand with our minds and be transformed through our hearts by the truth of God's Word. Father, we are so thankful for who you are and for what you've done for us in your Son. We're thankful, Lord, that you are a God who speaks, that you are not a God who has left us alone to figure out what life is like, but you, through your Word, have told us who you are and who we are in relationship to you. Father, I pray now that by your spirit, you would enlighten our minds and soften our hearts to not only hear truth, but be transformed by truth. Our desire is to honor you. And we need the truth of your word in our souls like our bodies need food. So nourish us now through the truth of your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Lazarus had been dead for four days. His corpse was placed in a tomb. It was beginning to decompose. But then Jesus shows up. And with a mere declaration, with nothing more than words from his mouth, Jesus raised Lazarus' lifeless body from the dead when he said, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died died, instantly sprang to life and stumbled out of the tomb. Now, it's hard for us to imagine the open-mouthed shock and amazement by those who witnessed this miracle. There must have been gasps of surprise, shouts of praise. And from Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha, tears of gratitude, their brother's alive. Now we might expect that if that happened here in Lima, word got out, Jesus is here, people would be thronging to Jesus to want to figure out who is this miracle worker who can raise people from the dead. I think everyone who heard would be drawn to him. And there were lots of people who did that. John's going to tell us in chapter 12, verse 11, that on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. But that was not the universal response. Because John tells us that among the Jewish leaders, the raising of Lazarus led them to begin plotting Jesus' death. They wanted to kill him. Verse 53 of chapter 11. So from that day on, they, the Jewish leaders, made plans to put him to death. And their plans would soon be successful the next uh, couple months or so. Several weeks to a couple months, the time between the uh, end of chapter 11 and chapter 12. And we move quickly to the time where Jesus is crucified. And according to John chapter 19, these Jewish leaders uh, go to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and they crowd, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to be crucified. As an historical event, then, the plot to kill Jesus in John chapter 11 is noteworthy because it leads to the crucifixion of Jesus in chapter 19. But at a theological level, there's more going on in this short scene than the successful scheming of the Jewish leaders. And as we reflect on their dialogue, as we evaluate their plans and look at all that in light of some other biblical passages, we see that there are some important theological truths that can be uh, drawn from this passage, truths that can have a significant effect on our lives. And this morning, I want to draw our attention to three of them, three truths that should govern our lives that are based on the plot to kill Jesus. The first truth is found in verses 45 through 48. Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. The Jewish leaders are beginning discussing what they should do about Jesus. So pick it up at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The council referred to in verse 47 was called the Sanhedrin. It was a supreme court of the Jewish people. The Roman authorities were still over control of the Sanhedrin, but the Romans had given lots of control to the Sanhedrin, especially in religious matters. The Sanhedrin is made up of 70 Jewish leaders and the high priest. Between the years of AD 18 and 36, the high priest was a man named Caiaphas, who's going to make an important statement in verse 50, which we'll get to in a minute. As the members of the Sanhedrin gather together to talk about Jesus, notice they're not having a discussion about whether or not Jesus raised someone from the dead. That's not really their point of conversation. They, they, they have eyewitness testimony in verse forty-seven, uh, verse, verse 46 Many people came and told them what Jesus had done. You should have seen what Jesus did. You should have been there. Lazarus was dead. They rolled away the stone and he came out of the tomb. I mean, they're hearing eyewitness testimony. In verse 47, they themselves acknowledge this man performs many signs. If you remember back a couple chapters, uh, John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who's been born blind. And and the Jewish leaders then are just about to lose their minds because they don't know what to do with this person who has uh, done this miracle and people are starting to follow him. And that's what's happening here as well. In that day, there was an expectation by the Jewish people that a Messiah was gonna step on the scene. Messiah is the the Hebrew word. The the Greek translation of Messiah is Christ. And both Messiah and Christ mean anointed one. So there's the expectation of an, an anointed king, a political savior who's gonna come on the scene and free the Jewish people from the Roman oppressors. We can see this being played out Uh, In chapter 12, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on what we now call Palm Sunday, and crowds of people go out to see him, and they shout out to him, Hosanna, which is a word that means, oh, save us, save us, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So that's what's happening during Jesus' ministry. There's this expectation that he's going to be this political ruler, uh, savior who's going to Provide a relief from Roman oppression. Well, the members of the Sanhedrin know that if throngs of people start to follow Jesus as their king and put their hope in Him as their political savior, there's going to be trouble from Rome because there's going to be a political uprising. The Roman army is going to come in. They're going to destroy Jerusalem and they're going to shut down this uh, ruling party of the uh, ruling body of the Sanhedrin, which means that they would lose their comfortable positions of power and influence. And that's what they say in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. In response to that, to that consternation, the high priest says in verse 50, it's better for you, members of the Sanhedrin, it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So we see here that the goal of this council and its leader was not to determine the truth about Jesus and what his signs that he did signified about him. Their goal was self-preservation and that's why they put Jesus to death or made plans to put Jesus to death. From this we learn that those who prioritize their earthly well-being end up rejecting Jesus. If you're using the sermon notes, you thought I forgot, didn't you? Thought I forgot. I didn't forget. I was just saving it for you. Here's point number one those who prioritize their earthly well being end up rejecting Jesus. Now, we have to admit that most people's rejection of Jesus is not actively hostile like the Sanhedrin's was. Instead, their rejection tends to be more passive, it's indifferent. They just don't care about Jesus. But the end result is exactly the same. They end up forsaking Jesus because they are prioritizing their earthly well-being. And in his earthly ministry, Jesus warned that this would happen. In Luke chapter 14, he tells a parable about the kingdom of God, and he says it's like a man who's getting ready for a banquet, which I just love that thought. The kingdom of God is going to be a big party, part of it at least. It's going to be a big party. God's throwing the party. It's not a carrying, It's not a potluck. He's providing it all. It's going to be a banquet. So Jesus is telling this parable. This man has prepared his banquet, and he says to the people he's invited, come, for everything is ready. But the people he's invited begin to make excuses. Luke 14, verse 18 The first one says, I've bought a field, I must go, I cannot see see it, so please have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, I go to examine them, please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. At the end of the parable, the man who planned this banquet says, I tell you that none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Notice these men are not involved in evil things. They simply want to enjoy good things. A field, yoke of oxen, a spouse. But they value these earthly possessions so much that they end up rejecting the banquet of God's kingdom. Jesus is teaching us That oxen and fields and marriage can keep a person out of the kingdom of God. Or if we put it maybe more in our cultural setting, a house, a savings account, a career. That's why Jesus says a little bit later in Luke chapter 14, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? I assume if you came to church today, one of the reasons is you want to be a disciple of Jesus. Here's one of the qualifications. You must renounce all that you have. Now, renouncing all that we have does not mean giving away all of earthly possessions, but it does mean giving them up. Acknowledging that God is the rightful owner of everything we have. The Greek, lang- uh, the Greek word that is translated renounce in Luke 14 is also found in uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 61, where a man tells Jesus, I will follow you, but first let me say farewell to those at my house. So in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is calling everyone who wants to be his disciple to say farewell to all that they have, to renounce their ownership on all their possessions and adopt the attitude of a steward. A steward's not an owner of anything. A steward owns, uh, manages someone else's property. It's common in some areas to say, well, we're gonna tithe, we're gonna give 10% to the Lord. And the the, the wrong idea that goes with that sometimes is the other 90% is mine. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches 100% of what we have belongs to God. We need to renounce all that we have. We are managing God's property for God's purposes. The members of the Sanhedrin were not willing to say farewell to their earthly comforts, the comforts they enjoyed due to their positions of power. And for that reason, because they wanted earthly comfort, earthly uh, pleasure, they rejected Jesus. And friends, what we need to understand is that the same thing could happen to us. We live in a culture that bombards us every single day with billboards and magazines and TV and radio and on, uh, you know, Facebook. Everywhere we look, we're bombarded with messages that tell us that in order to live a meaningful, happy life, you need stuff on earth. You need a bigger house. Go get yourself a nicer car. Get the latest electronic gadget. And also, take better vacations. Pick up some more exciting hobbies. And make sure you have an early, well-funded retirement. These are the things that will satisfy you. But they won't. They won't. No amount of earthly stuff, no amount of earthly experiences can satisfy the human soul. Because the human soul has been designed for God. The preacher of of Ecclesiastes learned this the hard way. Because he pursued full force. He was all in on a lifestyle of wealth and pleasure. And he went for the gusto. I mean, he, he got all he could get. And at the end of that, he concludes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, it was vanity and striving after wind. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. So Christians, we're supposed to be living life over the sun, right? We're looking to heaven. He said, under the sun, in this world, you pursue earthly stuff, want it to satisfy you, that's like striving after the wind. So go home today and try to get an armful of wind. It doesn't work. The stuff of this worth will will, will not satisfy our heart. And way worse than that, if we spend our lives pursuing the things of the world, earthly comfort, earthly treasure, earthly success, that is going to keep us from pursuing Christ. And if that doesn't change, the end result is we, we just walk away from Christ. We reject Christ. Just like the members of the Sanhedrin did. So let me start to meddle a little bit. <clears throat> How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? Look over your calendar, look at your checkbook, your budget book. What do these reveal about your priorities? Are you living like a disciple who has renounced, who's given up all that he has? Do you say in your heart, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus? Or do you honestly have to admit, yeah, I'm I'm primarily focused on my earthly well-being, That is a critical self-evaluation for each one of us to make because those who prioritize their earthly well-being over everything else will at some point reject Christ. That's one truth, a very sobering truth we learn from the Sanhedrin's plot to kill Jesus. A second truth is that God works through man's evil intentions to accomplish his good purposes. God works through man's evil intentions to accomplish his good purposes. When the members of the Sanhedrin are concerned that Jesus' popularity might result in them losing their positions of power, because the Romans might come and attack, and they don't know what to do about that, Caiaphas intervenes. He says to them, beginning in verse 19, You know nothing at all. Like, you you bunch of knuckleheads. I mean, that's an insulting thing, he said. You're stupid. You You don't know what you're talking about. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand, verse 50, it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Commenting on what Caiaphas has just said, John adds, he did not say this out of his, on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And then John says in verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Caiaphas was an unprincipled politician. He's offering a pragmatic solution that is both self-serving and immoral. And the majority of the Sanhedrin went along with his evil plan to put an innocent man to death. But in doing what they did, the Sanhedrin were not thwarting God's purposes. Instead, they were unintentionally advancing his purposes. And John alludes to this when he says of Caiaphas that he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. In prophecy, who's speaking? God's speaking. And here God is saying that Jesus will die for the sake of others. And this is not the first time that such a prophecy has been given. 700 years earlier, Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet says of the servant of the Lord, Christ, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Verse 12, he poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. God sent his son into the world for the purpose of dying for man's sin. And we're going to get to that at point number three. What I want us to notice here is that God is working through the evil intentions of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and he's working through their evil to accomplish his good purposes. Now, Peter states this explicitly in Acts chapter 2, at his first sermon. He tells a big group of Jewish people, this man, Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So Peter holds them responsible for what they did in calling for Jesus to be crucified, but at the same time he acknowledges that what happened was according to God's sovereign plan. There's a term that theologians, some theologians anyway, use to describe this biblical tension between human responsibility on the one hand and divine responsibility, uh, divine sovereignty on the other. And that term is compatibilism. New Testament scholar Don Carson explains in his book on evil and suffering that compatibilism affirms, quote, that God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in a way as to reduce human responsibility. And human beings are morally responsible creatures. They choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth. And they're rightly held accountable for such actions, but their choices never function in a way as to diminish God's sovereignty. Got that? It's easy, right? Our, our, we, we, try, we try to pull these two ideas together and, and we think, how, how can. God be sovereign over everything if people are responsible for the same act. How does that work? Well, I don't know how that works, but I think I know why that doesn't work, why, why our minds can't put it together. So here's an illustration. I, some of you have heard this. You, you have to hear it again. Uh, so we, 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 we put a picture up like this. So human responsibility, uh, we're representing with a rectangle, God's sovereignty with a circle. And with these pictures in mind, we ask, Is it possible to have an object that is both a a rectangle and a circle at the same time? Or to say it in our terms, can the circle of God's sovereignty and the rectangle of human responsibility exist together in the same event? Now, if we're thinking in two dimensions, the obvious answer to that is no. No object can be a circle and a rectangle at the same time. However, it is possible in three dimensions, and we see it all the time. Remember back to geometry class? What's a three-dimensional object? It's both a circle and a rectangle. It's a cylinder, right? Now, we have to uh, imagine we have a little two-dimensional friend. He can see up and down and left and right, but he can't see depth. And we're gonna show our little friend a can of Campbell's soup. And so we show him the top of the can and it looks like a circle. We show him the front of the can, it looks like a rectangle. And we tell our little friend, That's the same object. He's going to say, you're nuts because nothing can be a circle and a rectangle at the same time. And in his two-dimensional world, he's right. But we're holding the object in our hand. We know something can be a circle and a rectangle at the same time in our three-dimensional world. Now, I think it's the same way with compatibilism because we're like the little two-dimensional guy. We cannot comprehend how the circle of god's sovereignty and the rectangle of human responsibility can both be true but the infinite god who speaks a universe into existence how many dimensions does he live in i don't know but i'm sure it's much more than many more than 3 and he tells us that he is absolutely sovereign over everything that happens and that human beings are fully responsible for everything they do Now, we may not be able to comprehend how that is true, but I think this idea of compatibilism can still be comforting to us, especially when we look out into the world and see evil. See any evil in the world that upsets you? Or when we ourselves experience evil, it's important to remember God's still in control, He's still seated on His throne, He's still sovereign. And because he's good and wise and powerful, he will use even evil to accomplish his good purposes. This is something that Joseph understood. His older brothers sell him into slavery because they're jealous of their dad's uh, love for him. And while he's in Egypt, through God's blessing, Joseph rises to become the second most powerful man in the land. Then, during seven years of abundant crop, he's responsible for gathering and storing grain. And seven years of famine follow, and he's responsible for distributing the grain. And it's during that famine that his brothers show up looking for grain, and Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis chapter 45, verse 8, It was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph is acknowledging that God had been at work through their evil actions later he'll tell them in genesis 50 verse 20 as for you you meant evil against me but god meant it for good so joseph is saying that in the same event there's both human evil and divine good that i think is what the bible teaches and when we think about divine good we realize the Bible also teaches that God can make all things in our lives work for good. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that God causes all things, even evil things, to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Puritan author Thomas Watson wrote an entire book. It's not a very long book, but still, it's 150 pages or so, an entire book on this one verse, Romans 8, 28. And he says, Observe the happy condition of every child of God. All things work for his good, the best things and the worst things. What a blessed condition a true believer is in. When he dies, he goes to God, and while he lives, everything shall do him good. Even affliction shall do him good. Now I should add, this does not mean that we need to passively accept evil and affliction. We can certainly take appropriate steps to avoid it. Paul does this in, a, in um, Acts chapter 22. If you remember that story, he's about to be flogged by a Roman centurion, and he says, um, are you allowed to flog a Roman citizen? And Oh, I didn't know you are a Roman citizen. Let me put my, my whip down. So Paul took steps to avoid evil. We, we can too, but sometimes, no matter what we do, we still experience evil. And when that happens, a truth that will comfort our hearts and our souls is knowing that God works through man's evil intentions to accomplish his good purposes. A third truth that we can draw from this passage is that the death of Christ was a substitutionary sacrifice. The death of Jesus Christ was a substitutionary sacrifice. We've already noted how Caiaphas' statement to the Sanhedrin sets in motion their plan to put Jesus to death. But in what he tells them, what Caiaphas tells the Sanhedrin, he also alludes to the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death. Look again at verses 49 and 50. Caiaphas, uh, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas is telling members of the Sanhedrin who are wondering uh, what to do. That's his statement. It's better for one person to die. And John then comments, verse 51, he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that, Jesus would die for the nation. He, the, he prophesied, he spoke God's words saying that Jesus is going to die for the nation. In the Greek language of the New Testament, that little pre- preposition, for, that is used in both of those verses, verse 50 and also in verse 51, uh, is one that means on behalf of or for the sake of. So in his wicked proposal that Jesus should die For, for the sake of, on behalf of the nation, Caiaphas was suggesting that one man should die so that the nation could be spared. He would die in their place as their substitute. So he's saying, basically, let's kill Jesus so the Romans don't come and kill all of us. Caiaphas spoke far better than he knew because while he got his application horribly wrong, the underlying principle was right. Jesus would die for the sake of others. He would die as their substitute. But his substitutionary death was not for the sake of protecting the Jewish people from an attack by the Roman army. His substitutionary death was for the sake of protecting sinners from the consequence of their sin. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. That should be a, a very sobering verse for all of us. What we earn, what we deserve for disobeying God is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, spiritual separation from God. But Jesus Christ has come to die for us, He's come to die in our place. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul asserts that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That is, instead of us, in our place. And so, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body On the cross. In other words, Jesus died as our substitute. He died in our place. In his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott states that the biblical gospel of atonement, atonement is the work of reconciling God to man, the biblical doctrine of atonement is of God satisfying Himself by substituting Himself. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Trying to put ourselves in God's place. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Jesus Christ came to earth not only to live the life that we should have lived, but also, more importantly, to die the death that we deserve. In other words, his death was a substitutionary sacrifice. And that substitutionary sacrifice applies to everyone who puts their faith in him. Caiaphas told the Sanhedrin that it's better for you that one man should die for the nation, not that the whole nation should perish. And John explains in verse 51, he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So it sounds like, oh, this is just for Jewish people. But then John continues, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Jesus' substitutionary death, was not just for the nation of Israel. It wasn't just for Jewish people. It was for people scattered throughout the world who become God's children by embracing God's son. Back in John chapter 1, verse 12, John states, to all who did receive him, to, them, to those who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. No one is born a child of God, but anyone can become a child of God by putting their faith in Jesus Christ, receiving Him as Savior and Lord. And those who do that can live with the assurance that Jesus Christ died for them. He bore their sins in His body as He hung on the cross. And because of that, all their sins, no matter how many or how shameful, are forgiven. At the heart of Christianity then, There is a substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus says, in effect, my life for yours. I'll die so you can live. You can live forever in God's presence, not because you're good enough, but because I died for you. In my death, I fully paid the penalty that you deserve to pay for your sins. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, your place, condemned he stood. Sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do cry out, Hallelujah, what a Savior. We are so thankful the saving work of your son. Father, we pray that his saving work has a transforming effect on us, that we are changed people, we are different people because of what Jesus has done for us and in us. Father, help us live lives to your glory and to your honor. May we give ourselves, our time, our resources, all that we are to honor you. In Jesus' name.